Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. First Evangelical Church, what a joy to be back here among you. And it's been exactly one year since we last visited, and I had the privilege of also bringing a message from God's Word last year. I too am panting a little bit, Jake, but for different reasons. If you just add on 40 years, plus about with COVID about three weeks ago, uh, Mary Alice and I are on the other end of that, for which we are thankful. But I do have a nice bottle of water handy as I have been struggling with a nagging cough. So hopefully we will not have a problem with that over the next 30 minutes. We have felt so welcomed here each time we come back. And as for the wishers, this is definitely home. This is our home church. You supported us for over 16 years as we were ministering in Europe. And then, of course, we were back for about 15 years pastoring on the West Coast. But then as the Lord led us back to Europe and now to Africa, this church is once again 100% behind us. And we thank you for your ongoing prayers and support in such a faithful way. It is always such a joy to come back. Uh, the welcome has been stupendous. The other night, we were with the Marino family and their youngest, Habakkuk, who has been our three-year-old prayer warrior, uh, gave us this little card. Welcome. Uh, thank you for coming to dinner. I've missed you so much, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, we appreciated this so much. I don't know if you know it, Habakkuk, but one of the meanings of your name is embrace. And we have felt embraced. Even as those recovering from COVID, we have been embraced. And we are so thankful for Jan Carrier who has hosted us. For those with whom we were able to meet yesterday in this seminar, exploring God's new humanity, a church of the nations and for the nations. What a warm welcome we had there. And so we're thankful to be able to be here and share the word of God with you. I understand that uh, First Evangelical Church has been in several initiatives over the last few years, one of which is entitled Kingdom Culture. And as we think about Kingdom Culture, obviously several questions come to mind. Particularly in a society such as here in America, a society that is deeply divided and even at times polarized ideologically, socially, politically, and most definitely racially. In a context such as that, what does kingdom culture really look like? From a biblical perspective, 
Today, I would like to try to answer that question from the Word of God by looking at the end, the beginning, and everything between, and do it all in 35 minutes, Lord willing. You know, in Africa, they have an expression, you have the watch, we have the time. Well, today, we're going to try to put the two together, and yet we want to be led by the Spirit of God also. A business principle that has been popularized in recent years goes like this, begin with the end in mind. But you know what? It's not only a good business principle, it's a good Bible principle. We need to begin with the end in mind. C.S. Lewis once put it this way, it is largely because Christians have ceased to think of the next world that they have become so ineffective in this world. So today, we're going to begin with the end, going all the way to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. There, the seer prophet John gives us a glimpse into this exhilarating, exuberant display of multi-ethnic worship in heaven before the throne of God. And if you and I were there, I'm sure we would stand amazed. Ah, there's a Mary Ann Fraser. <laughs> there's an Earl Stevens. There's others whom you can name who have gone on before us from this church. And they are there in this multicolored, multinational, multi-ethnic group of people who are praising the name of God. And John puts it this way. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This amazing cacophony of praise that is lifted up to the Lamb of God and to the Father is expressed by people from around the globe. It is multicolored. John ransacks the Greek language in order to underscore the diversity of this crowd of people. Nations, speaking of the, the natural cohesion of those united by culture and tradition. Tribes, speaking of biological lineage. Uh, people, speaking of those united geopolitically. Language, of course, those expressing linguistic similarity. Amazingly, in this group of people, there is no segregation according to color, culture, and socioeconomic class. Nor is there separation according to generational preferences with baby boomers, millennials, or generation X, Y, and Z worshiping in separate corners of heaven. No, this diverse multitude of people, they are united together as they express their praise to God. You know, you've probably heard it said, we need to be colorblind. I could not disagree more. The Bible is not colorblind and God is not colorblind. God takes great delight in the various colors 
represented in humanity across the globe. God never, according to the Word of God, calls us out of our ethnicity, but He does call us always beyond our ethnicity. And it's because these individuals knew that God had called them beyond their ethnicity that they were able to join in a unified voice of praise to the Lamb of God. So I have a question this morning, and it's this. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? Have you ever thought about that? In a large metropolitan area like Memphis, where 64.7% of the population is black or African-American, have you ever thought about the fact that why is it that as we drive to church on Sunday mornings, blacks largely worship with blacks, Koreans worship with Koreans, Hispanics with Hispanics, and white Caucasian with white Caucasian? We moved here in 1969, and it was exactly one year after Martin Luther King was shot, about 18 miles from here at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. In a very well-known message that he preached once called Paul's Letter to the American Churches, he says this. He says, there is another thing that disturbs me to no end. You have a white church and you have a Negro church. You have allowed segregation to creep into the doors of the church. How can such a division exist in the true body of Christ? You must face the tragic fact that when you stand at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning to sing all hail the power of Jesus' name and dear Lord and Father of all mankind, you stand in the most segregated hour of Christian America. Amen. You see, that question disturbed Martin Luther King. Does it disturb us? Do we ever think about that? The old adage, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. And that's what John describes in Revelation 7. But to live below with saints we know, particularly those of another color, culture, or socioeconomic class, that's another story. So if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? Did not Jesus leave us this prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We often have a tendency to reason up from earth towards heaven. I submit to you this morning that the scriptures call us to reason down from heaven to earth. In order to do that, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. It's been said God created mankind in His own image. All the rest of the Bible is simply a commentary on that one phrase. If we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? 
Well, among other things, it implies resemblance. In the beginning, God created mankind in his likeness, the text says. Oh, we were not created to be gods, but we were created to be like God. We do not resemble God physically, for God is spirit, but we are called to resemble God morally. God himself says, you shall be holy even as the Lord your God is holy. To be created in the image of God is not only to, uh, indic indicating resemblance, it also implies relationship. In fact, we resemble God to the degree that we live in loving relationship with all of humanity. Hidden away in the let us and our image is a veiled allusion to the great three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who himself provides the template for God's most cherished intentions for all of humanity, and that is relational love. But to be created in the image of God implies not only resemblance and relationship, it also implies rule. So that they may rule, the text says. We as humanity were called to populate, to subjugate, and to dominate this earth, to be good stewards of all of creation. And friends, resemblance, relationship, and rule, all of that speaks of our inherent dignity, the dignity of the human race. Apparently, as God created man and woman, just as the Bible is not colorblind, nor is it genderblind, apparently God had no difficulty defining male and female. He knew exactly what that meant, and he knew the purpose of it and the relational implications of that not only between man and woman, but then between man and woman and all of society. And who we are as the image of God speaks of our dignity. And the Scriptures always underscore that the dignity of all must never become the inferiority of some. There is only one race, the human race, and we occupy a very dignified role in God's creation. Of course, you know the rest of the story in the Garden of Eden. The real problem was not the fruit on the tree, it was the pear on the ground, Adam and Eve. You and me. Uh, back in the early 1900s, the London Times contacted several philosophers and writers and asked them, to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton gave the most simple and concise response. He wrote back, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We are the problem. And yet, really, that is not the source of evil. The real source of evil lies behind. It is cosmic. It is supernatural in character. It is the arch enemy of humanity who only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus puts it. It's the arch enemy of humanity who sowed seeds of doubt and disobedience that reaped a harvest of rebellion and destruction. 
And as a result, the world today is nothing but one giant cemetery. You see, whenever mankind attempts to become more than he is, he, he becomes less than he is. And that's because you and I never, never find in sin that which we enter sin to find. It was true in the Garden of Eden. It's also true. It was also true on the plains of Shinar. As the people gathered together, lifting up their arm, their ugly fist of rebellion against God, and they said in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city, make a name for ourselves, so that we will not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, Genesis chapter 11 and the story of Babel follows on the heels of Genesis chapter 10, which actually is one of the oldest ethnological tables in all of Scripture. It reminds us that the biblical story is multi-ethnic, multi-colored through and through. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, from one man he made all the nations in order that they might inhabit the whole earth. You see, the idea of nationalities and ethnicities and color and languages that we might attribute it to Babel, actually from the very beginning, God wanted diversity in unity from Genesis chapter 1. It's part of our DNA as humanity, just as there is diversity and unity within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since we are the image of God, so we should also reflect that same diversity in unity that characterizes the God that we worship. But these people didn't want that. They wanted uniformity over diversity in union. They basically wanted forced union in building the Tower of Babel. And forced union is nothing more than, you might say, two cats with their tails tied hung over a clothesline. They don't get along very well. So God's solution was to break through. These people wanted to gather. God wanted them to scatter. They wanted uniformity. God wanted diversity. Essentially, they were exchanging the truth of the dignity of all for the lie of the inferiority of some. And so the solution for God, from God's standpoint was to turn Babel into a Babel. Genesis 11, verses 7 to 8. Come, let us go down. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit implied and confused their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth. You know, when we first moved to France, I, uh, as for most people learning another language, I struggled. I only knew two phrases when we moved to France. Où se trouvent les toilettes? where the toilets found, and hallelujah. And I shouted the latter when I found the former. <laughs> Have you gone to a different culture and tried to do your best? <sighs> Sign language. Well, that's what these people were doing. They spoke the least spoken and the most silent language in the whole world. And that became old after a while. And so they began to do exactly what God wanted them to do, spread out over the face of the earth. But here's the catch. On the very heels of them being scattered throughout the earth, God continued to enact his redemptive program. We come to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and that great Abrahamic promise. Then the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country 
your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on the face of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, Israel, birthed in the very loins of Father Abraham, was intended to be a type of, of divine counterculture that would usher in a new kingdom culture that would bring the blessing and warmth of the gospel to every culture on the face of the earth. This universal multi-ethnic vision of our great three-in-one God in heaven is reaffirmed time and time again throughout the scriptures. For example, we come to Psalm chapter 86 and verse 9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. That's the ultimate hope that we lean into. No longer the Babel, the arrogance of Babel, wanting to make a name for themselves, but now a desire to bring only honor and glory to the Lord. And of course, that splendid scene is seen ultimately fulfilled in the passage we read earlier from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Fast forward another 400 years to the time of the prophet Zephaniah, who says this, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And so we ask, what happened? What happened? Well, what happened is this. Gradually, the people of God, Israel, began to no longer define themselves in relationship to God vertically. They began to define themselves in relationship to others. And whenever you and me, or whenever we as a church begin to define ourselves in relationship to others, we're in difficulty. For that began a downward slide of ethnocentrism in the nation of Israel. In other words, Israel began to look inwardly rather than outwardly. God had given the blessing to Abraham in order that through him, the blessing would come to others. God has blessed you and me with the Word of God, with the fellowship of believers, with the joy of a local church, with all of the benefits that we experience. But He doesn't bless us so that we might simply sit back and bask in that blessing. He has blessed us in order that through us that blessing might be brought to those around, including all of the other ethnicities represented in the city of Memphis and far beyond. And so by the time we come to the coming of Jesus, the man for all nations, he was described as one huh, coming from Nazareth. What good could come out of Nazareth? It became a type of racial slur. And then Jesus moves into the temple where the religious services had now been uh, distorted into a form of consumerism and a marketplace mentality. And he begins to drive out those who were selling in the temple. And what does he say? He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then we think of that wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the other portions of the other precincts of the temple, Herod's second temple. 
a wall that was 1.5 meters thick, beyond which the Gentiles, the nations, could not pass. And appropriately so, for it originally had a sig significance. It signified the fact that it was through Israel that God was bringing the good news to the nations, the man for all nations, and that ultimately those Gentiles in the court of Gentiles would receive that blessing. But for Israel, it was no longer, it no longer had that significance. What had spiritual overtones had been turned into, again, more of a racial separation. Uh, Gentile and uncircumcised became a type of racial slur to refer to those who were inferior. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, the Jews and the nations of the world. He has made the two groups one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He did this in order that he might create in himself one new humanity, thus making peace, and through the cross to reconcile them both to God. Before the service, I was observing the cross that we have on the back wall, the front wall here. Notice that there's a vertical beam and there's a horizontal beam. In much of the preaching of the gospel, we place emphasis on the vertical beam. That is our reconciliation to God. But that cross also has a horizontal beam. And it is on that cruel cross that the man for all nations in his Jewish body was crucified. And at that moment, with one hand, he took the Jews, believing Jews. And in the other hand, he took Gentiles, those who placed their faith in Christ, and he brought them together into one new organism, the body of Christ called the new humanity. Paul emphasizes this in the preceding verses when he says, in, starting in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together. By grace you are saved. And he raised us up together. And he seated us in the heavenly places together in Jesus Christ. If we have been made alive together, if we have been raised up together, if we have been seated together in the heavenly places in Christ, so that now, as Paul goes on to say in the book of Ephesians, we are members together, we are sharers together, we are heirs together, all the while being built together and fit together and gathered together, knowing that one day all things will be ultimately brought together under one head, Jesus Christ, Certainly, we as believers can learn to live together and worship together and serve together across cultural lines and racial lines within our country. It can never happen apart from the Holy Spirit. It can't be contrived. It can't be programmed. It can't be fabricated. It can't be concocted. It can only take place by the Spirit of God. Meditate with me on this mystery. 
In the beginning, God fashioned a man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. God then caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, during which time he opened his side, took one of his ribs, and formed a woman. Eve was the only woman in the history of mankind to be part of her husband's body before becoming his bride. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. In a similar way, Jesus Christ, the second man and last Adam, was led to the cross and into the sleep of death. His side was pierced, and from the blood that flowed from the wound, a new humanity was born, the church. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Even as God created the first man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so once again the great three-in-one breathed and the new humanity conceived at the cross became a living organism at Pentecost. At the cross and at Pentecost, Jesus Christ far more than replaced what Adam erased and the Trinity rejoices. You remember what took place? It was on Sunday, May 24, A.D. 33, exactly 1,989 years ago, according to the best calculations, when the resurrected, ascended Christ gave his going-away gift to the church, the Holy Spirit. Remember what took place? There was supernatural sound, sight, speech. More than 15 different nationalities, Jewish proselytes from other parts of the world were gathered together, representing the five major people groups and the three major divisions which are outlined in Genesis chapter 10. Those divided by language and ethnicity and culture now hear the gospel in their own language. Essentially, Acts chapter 2 is nothing less than the reversal of Babel. At Babel, man arrogantly ascends to heaven, whereas at Pentecost, God humbly descends to earth. At, Pent at Babel, the languages are confused. At Pentecost, the languages are understood. At Babel, the people are scattered. At Pentecost, the people are gathered. At Pentecost, we have divided nations. It's Pentecost, in Acts 2, we have God's united nations. Babel speaks of alienation. Pentecost speaks of reconciliation. And it is that very reconciliation for which Jesus prays for his church. He prayed for his church in that upper room with his disciples, and he continues to intercede for his church today. In his words, he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, that is, this group of wannabe disciples, this group that would form the nucleus of the early church that was Jewish to the core. But he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The man for all nations was praying for all nations. He was praying for you, and he was praying for me. What does he pray? I pray, he says, that they might be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
in order that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will believe, Jesus says. Then the world will believe that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a little wonder that Francis Schaeffer once said that that verse is the final apologetic of the church. For we who claim to have a message of reconciliation, we can preach that message of reconciliation, but to a certain degree, according to Jesus' prayer, it will fall on deaf ears unless the church demonstrates the very diversity and unity for which the Scriptures, that the Scriptures teach and for which Jesus prays. Some of you may not know this, but after my father, Earl Stevens, left First Evan to move back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, a city that was still experiencing uh, some of the racial strife that has been evident over the last 150, 200 years. He moved back to the city of Chattanooga where his previous church was located, and it was now in a community that was 85% black. And he wondered, well, how can we work in this situation? What is God calling the church to? Not just the church that I used to pastor, but what is God calling the churches of Chattanooga towards? And it was at that moment that my dad called me and he said, you know, I've been thinking. I believe that God wants to see a movement of prayer started in Chattanooga across lines of ethnicity in order to see whites and black churches coming together and working together for the sake of the gospel. And dad worked at that for nearly four years. He formed a committee. He, they were planning what is called a pastor's prayer summit. And the very first pastor's prayer summit of Chattanooga, Tennessee took place in, as I recall, uh, late 1998 and I had actually come back from France in order to bring two French colleagues with me so that they could see what was taking place as we were working on some of that same vision in Europe at the time. Unfortunately, my dad never got to attend that first prayer summit. Actually, he died on the day that that prayer summit opened up but his dream was realized. And I had the joy of being there on that very first day before I got the call, come to the hospital quick. And to sit there with those pastors, whites and black and other ethnicities, as they began to kneel in prayer and pray together for the city of Chattanooga and for also reconciliation within the church of Jesus Christ, it was a moving moment. And I'm sure that my father, soon to be in heaven, as he arrived there, was also looking down and rejoicing over what God was doing. How do we lean into Jesus' prayer in this particular passage? I would like to suggest at least three ways. First of all, believer, it begins at the cross. For as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 15, it is through the cross that we have been reconciled. It is the cross. The very cross that has made us one is the same cross that can keep us as one. And I am convinced more and more that today the body of Christ is broken. 
largely to the degree that we as individual Christians are not. And so may the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 be our motto, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is with that spirit, as we live under the shadow of the cross, that we can work for unity in every area, whether it has to do with sociological issues, political issues, or whatever. Those issues are peripheral. What defines us is the cross and who we are in Jesus Christ as the new humanity. Secondly, how do we live in response to Jesus' prayer? We join in his prayer by praying for the same thing, praying for the complete unity of the church. John 14, verses 12 and 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these will you do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. And what is the implication of that? Because I go to the Father, I'm sending to you my going away spirit, and it is through the power of that Pentecost Holy Spirit that we are able to lean into the prayer for unity that Jesus himself prayed. That's why Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do in order that the Father might be glorified in the Son. And believer, the Father is glorified in the Son when we do everything by God's grace to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How do we lean into Jesus' prayer finally? Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Actually, they were the same words that Joshua read to us earlier in the Scripture reading this morning. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, tells us the what, the how, and the why of unity in the body of Christ. Paul says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to maintain the unity in the Spirit, keeping yourselves bound together in peace. Why? For there is one body, there is one Spirit. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all and over all and who works through all who believe. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for the instruction that your word gives. glimpses into the very character of God, the great three-in-one, our model for unity within the body of Christ. Lord, we pray that at this very moment you would speak to each one of us individually, but also collectively as a church.
As you ask yourself that question this morning, how can I live in fulfillment of Jesus' prayer? Maybe God is speaking to you about a root of bitterness. Maybe God is speaking to you about an attitude of prejudice towards certain other people or ethnicities or cultures. Maybe you're struggling with a spirit of unforgiveness towards someone, a family member, a colleague, another member of this congregation. Maybe you've become more aware of a divisive spirit within your own heart that needs to be repented of and where the cross, the cross of Christ needs to reign supreme. This morning, if God has spoken to you in a specific way, maybe the Spirit of God has placed His divine finger on a particular area of your life, an attitude, an action, judgments towards others that need to be recognized. Or maybe it's simply God calling you to take a new initiative to do all possible to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I would like to simply ask you at this moment to just stand right where you are. If God has spoken to you this morning in a very specific way, would you just stand, just stand right where you are as a declaration before God, Lord, I've heard, I want to respond. I'm available. Help me to be an agent of grace and reconciliation in the lives of others. Thank you, Father, for this moment to hear from you and the scriptures and your love for all peoples and how we pray that, Lord, we would lean into this truth and that it would become more and more a part of our experience, our daily life. Help us to learn to step into the lives of those that are different from us and to do it all for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.